Good afternoon and welcome to uh, this, in, this amazing panel presentation on this anniversary of the atomic bombings in Hiroshima. Uh, on August 6th, uh, 1945, Father Pedro Rupe, the future Superior General of the Society of Jesus, was at the Jesuit novitiate in Hiroshima. And then in what he described uh, was something like a flash of magnesium, the atomic bomb of course exploded and knocking him and his companions to the ground. And he wrote in his diary, I shall never forget my first sight of what was the result of the atomic bomb. A group of young women, 18 or 20 years old, clinging to one another as they dragged themselves out along the road. We did the only thing that could be done in the presence of such slaughter. We fell to our knees and prayed for guidance, destitute for all human help. Father Rupe survived that first atomic bomb, as you know, and with other Jesuits set up a makeshift hospital at the Novitiate, attempting to save as many lives as possible. It's an event, of course, that haunted him and everyone who lived through it uh, and, and survived it. Uh, and it's a topic he returned to time and again throughout his life. And 75 years later, we continue to grapple with the devastation and the ensuing nuclear proliferation that followed, that was spawned on that day. When the bomb doors of that B-25 Enola Gay opened on this anniversary, um, killing 70,000 people in an instant, there was a new age born that was rife with fears of bombing and nuclear winters shaping our thoughts in the remaining half of the 20th century. The church has grappled with this reality, as you know, uh, the reality of possible imminent destruction at the hands of nuclear weapons over the last eight decades as well. Calling for peace, demanding new ethical frameworks for just war and sustainable peace in the atomic age and working for nuclear non-proliferation. For Jesus Christ, the source and the summit of our salvation, the King of peace, obviously demands nothing less from us than to work to those ends. America Magazine also has had a long history of commentary on the uh, atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and of course, all that followed. Uh, you can find uh, those links at americamagazine.org. And we are very proud uh, at America to be able to co-sponsor this discussion today with the Lumen Christi Institute, the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, and the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown. And I'm particularly grateful to our speakers, Dr. Andrew Basevich, president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, uh, who is a phenomenal thinker and writer on these topics. His Excellency, Archbishop Timothy Brolio of the Archdiocese of Military Services for the United States. And finally, my predecessor here at America, Father Drew Christensen, Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Human Development in Georgetown School of Foreign Service and a Senior Fellow at the Berkeley Center. I'm also grateful to uh, Dr. Joseph Capizzi, Ordinary Professor of Moral Theology at CUA, uh, to whom I now turn over today's discussion as I invite the speakers to unmute themselves and to join the conversation. Thank you very much, Father Matt. Um, 
on behalf of everybody over here at Catholic University and the Institute for Human Ecology, it's my pleasure um, to be able to be part of this conversation. Um, it's also our pleasure to be working with you guys um, at America Media uh, and the people at Lumen Christi and the Berkeley um, Center. Uh, I think this is an important event and, uh, and the importance of the event is no doubt testi testified to by the uh, prominence of the speakers we were able to gather today to think through some of these questions uh, before we have a conversation um, with uh, the audience as well. So let's just start at the beginning. Today um, is the 75th anniversary of the first bombing, the bombing of Hiroshima. Father Drew, perhaps you could just um, begin our conversation by giving us a sense of what is the first thing that we should really be bringing to mind uh, today um, and also on the ninth uh, when we think about these events. And then uh, once you answer, perhaps um, our other panelists can weigh in as well. Well, I think the first thing is, as, as the dedicatory slides at the beginning of those killed uh, by the horrors of bombing in, in warfare in World War II. And since then, I, I just uh, completed uh, Eric Larson's book, uh, uh, The Splendid in the Bile, about the first year of the war and around and Churchill's immediate circle at that time. And uh, I, I read and seen pictures of the, of the, the, of the Battle of Britain, but I never uh, realized how extensive that battle was, how many cities were bombed in, in Britain. Uh, and, uh, how that the fire bombings, if they were, they were incendiary bombings, but to, to light the path for the bombers preceded the actual bombing. And so there was multiple, multiple uh, kinds of killings that went on week after week after week in Britain. Um, so that uh, there, the war was a hard, hard thing everywhere. And, but especially uh, at the places we commemorate this week, because in an instant, um, Whole cities were blown away, and uh, uh, the effects lingered with the survivors for years after. And so, I think today we, we need to do two things. One is to uh, is to mourn the dead. The two is to to uh, to contemplate the horror of of uh, of warfare, particularly of nuclear warfare, and ask ourselves what is it we can do uh, to bring about. Uh, a lasting peace and eliminate nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. Thank you. Archbishop, do you want to add anything to that? Like what, what is like, you know, sort of the, the first thing or the thing that you think um, we're really commemorating on a day like today? Well, certainly I would, I would join Father Christensen in, in mourning all of those uh, who died and, uh, and also lamenting that, that, this war even even took place. Um, I also have a personal reflection in the sense that uh, probably had uh, Japan not surrendered when it did, I might not have existed because my father probably would have been mobilized from Great Britain to uh, to fight on the on the Pacific front. So um, that's also a sobering thought. Yeah, great, thank you. So one thing that. Um, Father Drew, you got, you got to, um, and, and maybe Andy, you can begin to help us think through this, is that on the one hand, uh, by this point in the war, by 1944, the, the, the bombing of civilians was routine. Um, the, the slide that we just, you know, we let off with named cities that were just among the cities where either the allies or the Axis powers were 
directly targeting civilian populations. Uh, but there's, but we remember these days in particular. We don't typically commemorate the the bombings of Dresden or London, um, among other cities. What is it about atomic or nuclear weapons um, that's different? Andy, maybe you could be, begin to be, help us think through this. Why do we remember these days differently than we do um, other bombings that were, like I said, routine by that part of the war? Part of the war? Well, I think it's, uh, it is possible when we're dealing with uh, aerial bombardment relying on conventional munitions it's possible to create an argument that they are legitimate weapons of war. Now, you know, when you get to Dresden, you get to Hamburg, you get to fire bombings of Tokyo, it's a bit of a stretch. But uh, as instruments of conventional war, I think it is still possible to make an argument that there, there can be a moral justification. But I think with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it becomes impossible to do that. Uh, that. That there is something about the nature of these weapons that puts them in a different category. And also, I would add that their existence their use on at least two occasions invites a different perspective on the bombing that, that use conventional weapons, invites a different perspective on Hamburg and Dresden and the fire bombings of, of Tokyo. Now, I would not have said this as a young man, but it does seem to me that uh, this anniversary that we are, are commemorating really does uh, pose radical new questions uh, with regard to the morality of warfare and the, the, the circumstances in which waging war can be seen as politically uh, acceptable, rational, instrumental. Yeah, yeah. C could we stay here um, for just a little bit and maybe invite um, the other panelists in? Because it seems very important to me to think about um, this, these categories of legitimate and illegitimate weapons of war, right? Um, on the one hand, those are old ideas that there are some weapons that are illegitimate and some weapons that are legitimate to the practice of war, right? We, we know that um, for almost as long as you can look back to histories of war, you'll see some recollection that certain ways of fighting are illegitimate and certain are not. So I guess the, the question would be, what is it about these weapons that makes, that, that moves them into the category of illegitimate weapons, right? So we've spoken that way about poison gases, right? We speak that way about chemical weapons and so on, biological weapons now. What is it about nuclear weapons that provokes our imagination um, in a way that we want to say those seem illegitimate? Is it um, some combination of like after effects? You know, the, the, the radioact radioactive power that's left behind? Is it the instantaneous quality of it or so on? Um, 
Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Or Andy, maybe you, you know, can keep going. Um, well, I, I mean, there's some thought. I, I think it is uh, not until your question. <laughs> yeah. uh, it becomes exceedingly hard with nuclear weapons, becomes exceedingly hard to conjure up a scenario in which their use can be militarily purposeful and also at least make it possible to go through the motions of respecting the principle of non-combatant immunity. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a particular student of the of the uh, Anglo-American uh, combined bomber offensive uh, in uh, in World War II in Europe. Uh, but certainly the Americans in particular, less so I think the RAF, but the Americans persuaded themselves that they were engaged in something that they called precision bombing. To a considerable extent, this was a, a, a lie, they, a convenient lie they told themselves, but nonetheless, uh, they persuaded themselves that they were targeting military targets. Nobody, nobody was kidding themselves that there were not non-combatants also being uh, killed, injured, and dehoused. But they persuaded themselves that they were at least making an honest effort uh, to have the weapon of conventional uh, strategic bombing conform to uh, the basic principle of honoring non-combatant immunity. And I think that when you get to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, even, even the pretense uh, becomes obviously uh, you know, unpersuasive. And so we find ourselves in, in entirely new moral terrain. Thank you. Father Drew, do you have any thoughts on that? Like why we, why we regard these as illegitimate weapons or why they're often thought of that way? Well, there were those uh, in the military at the time of the development and first use of the weapons uh, who uh, argued against their use on grounds of discrimination. General Eisenhower for one, General Marshall for another, um, uh, Admiral Leahy, I believe. They were all opposed to the use of the weapon uh, and uh, uh, on grounds of discrimination. And so those principles were strong uh, within the military. In fact, the US was reluctant to get involved in the, the air war uh, in Germany uh, for some time uh, because it held to, to, to the principles of discrimination only over time that Churchill and, and the RAF persuade them. And uh, I think the reasons that, that uh, you know, there, there, there is a, a shame, if you will, to some extent expressed in the fact that Obama Harris, the head of the RAF uh, command was never honored with a knighthood, or that, uh, as a matter of fact, the military uh, hid the consequences of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki until J John Hershey's novel was released in the, in the New Yorker, Hiroshima, uh, showing that they, they understood the consequences, that the public would understand that a, a great taboo had been violated here in an egregious way. With respect to your, your, your general question, it seems to me that a physicist would tell you, well, clearly there is uh, a difference between a nuclear reaction and an ordinary physical reaction. Uh, so, uh, and a nuclear reaction uh, can create uh, untold, untold harm. Uh, 
Um, I think in terms of its use in warfare, the question is, can it be used anywhere without involving uh, uh, wide-scale damage? The lawyer, international lawyers at the time that the, the recent ban treaty was being debated at the UN uh, were arguing for it on the grounds that there was a legal, legal uh, uh, gap, if you will, uh, in international law because uh, uh, biological weapons and chemical weapons had both been forbidden as weapons of mass destruction. Everyone recognized that the chief weapon of mass destruction remaining was nuclear weapons and it hadn't, it hadn't been banned. Um, uh, and I think uh, as time has gone on, we've understood more and more the consequences of, of, of nuclear weapons. The, it was the humanitarian consequences movement that led to the, the ban treaty from 19, from 2013 on to 2017. Um, and uh, there we became conscious too of the ecological impact of, 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 and the generational impact of the bombs, which make, put them in a wholly different class on other weapons. There's no usable nuclear weapon. I mean, the smaller they get, uh, the, the, there's no way to distinguish them then from conventional weapons. So the, the ones that we call small are 15 times the size of the ones that we use at Hiroshima. So uh, it seems to me that, that the, there are lots of reasons to see them as, as a different kind of, of weapon uh, that needs real stringent uh, response. One of the, um, uh, what we, we've used the language of discrimination or uh, distinction um, with regard to non-combatant immunity and so on. Maybe, um, Father Drew, you could just spell, spend a minute spelling that out, but what that means um, for our listeners in, in part or attentive to an argument that we know existed at the time. Right. One of the arguments at the time um, that was used to justify um, their use was that the Japanese population was militarized, right? That it was, it was ready to fight every last mo man, woman, and child, right? Um, uh, to defend itself against um, allied um, invasion. So doesn't that mean then, or wouldn't, wouldn't that follow then that discrimination or distinction is irrelevant in their case? No, it's not. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, if, if uh, when the Nazis would execute uh, uh, civilians after one of their people had been killed by, by a resistance fighter, so they'd line up 10 at Lidice, right, at one of the other towns where this kind of uh, execution was taken place, we regard that as unjust. Uh, uh, yeah, you might be able to single, if you could find the, the resistance killer, it might be just to, 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 uh, to kill the, the particular, but you can't kill innocent people for, for what warriors are taking up. The, this, the notion of, of war is that soldiers are permitted to, to carry arms and to kill uh, because they're doing it in the defense of others. Uh, and um, uh, therefore, they, they, they're only allowed to use the weapons against other military personnel. So the distinction is this classic one uh, between uh, warriors and the non-combatants. 
Uh, and non-combatants are, are civilians generally, but they fit into lots of other categories, including prisoners and, and the hospitalized and so on. Um, uh, and uh, uh, we get into lots of casuistry about what about out in the margins, but the basic distinction is essential to, to, uh, to warfare as a morally governed activity. The problem with nuclear weapons is they break all those categories. I mean, they just, there's no way you can sustain them. Uh, and therefore, either uh, uh, at a point in time or across time. I mean, both they're violating uh, the, the notion of discrimination. So it seems to me that, that, uh, uh, that nuclear weapons uh, are just, you know, um, almost uh, ineradicably indiscriminate when it comes to, to, their, to their use in, in battle. So Andy began by pointing out, you know, as a young man, how um, he would have thought differently than he does now about um, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Archbishop Brolio, you mentioned uh, how you might not even be here um, had uh, the war not ended shortly after. Um, those bombings, uh, I mean, I, uh, I also grew up, you know, a young person thinking, uh, not thinking, thinking, you know, uncritically that, uh, of course, um, their use was appropriate and so on. Uh, a lot of Americans and a lot of Catholic Americans are going to think um, and do think that um, it's a minority view to, to hold as strictly as, uh, as we seem to be in this conversation to this principle of discrimination uh, that would judge this use of, as immoral. And yet, as uh, uh, I think I recall correctly, um, every bishop has condemned their, excuse me, every pope has condemned their use um, since their use then. Uh, is this standard Catholic teaching, Archbishop uh, Brolio, on, on this issue that, um, at least morally, um, that it's wrong to intend the killing of innocent people, even for such great a, a good as perhaps the shortening of war? Well, I think you, you have to make a number of distinctions here which are not being made. For one thing, we're not called uh, here to make a judgment on the use of nuclear arms in 1945. That's been done. Um, and, you know, you can argue the figures all you want, the 784,000 uh, Japanese troops that were amassed at the point of entry in Japan, the 575,000 home defense forces. Um, we've already surpassed uh, the number of people who died either at Hiroshima or, or Nagasaki. Right. right. Um, those are all, you know, from my point of view, they're, they're all interesting uh, questions. I, I think a more important question is um, working to make sure that this event, if you want to call it that, uh, that this use of nuclear arms never happens again. And I think that's what, uh, uh, certainly what the Holy Fathers have, uh, they have uh, advocated, you know, from Pius XII onward. Um, and that's, uh, that's perhaps a more fruitful type of discussion to have, because we can't change what happened in 1945. And what, what is the state, the current state of Catholic teaching on nuclear weapons, um, Archbishop? The current state? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, 
I think we we have all kinds of uh, of uh, invitations uh, that they that they not be used. Uh, even if we go back to uh, uh, St. John Paul II in 1982, uh, urging that, um, that you know that they that accepting that they they exist for deterrence, but uh, urging that they that they not be used up until uh, uh, Pope Francis saying that uh, saying in Japan that uh, um, we shouldn't even possess them. I mean, I think you have the the full the full gamut there from from deterrence to not having them at all. Um, anybody else want to add anything to that? Thank you, thank you, Archbishop. Well, I, I think it's on the current state of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to 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 understand that that Pope uh, Francis uh, talks of us as a as a teaching learning church, and he puts emphasis on people learning, and I think. Uh, what he's inviting people to do is to to ponder these issues and to to see what they can do to see that it's ended. Uh, the Holy See in in signing in uh, in signing and then ratifying the treaty to uh, prohibit nuclear weapons uh, has uh, indicated it's cast its lot with with people who think that nuclear weapons ought to be banned. Uh, and Francis has condemned them uh, in his own remarks. Uh, but the question is, what will we do about it? Uh, and uh, uh, working for abolition is important. But I, I, I think language on abolition can, go, can be seen as far back as Pope John XXIII. Um, Pope John Paul II, uh, a year before he made his UN speech, speech uh, accepting the use of nuclear weapons for deterrence solely, uh, indicated that uh, he wanted people to work for disarmament uh, and that the, the goal had to be elimination of nuclear weapons. Uh, Pope Benedict did the same at the end of the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference in 2010. Um, he, he spoke about the need to, to lean into the question of uh, proliferation, preventing, preventing the proliferation of nuclear weapons and uh, work for their elimination. Uh, and uh, uh, Pope Francis now in condemning uh, uh, the use of, of, of nuclear weapons in their possession effectively rules out even deterrence. And the, 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 uh, the, the, the task now is to, to fulfill the, the whole question of elimination. How do we move ahead where we stand, whatever community we're in, where are our responsibilities or what actions do we take to help advance that process, the elimination of the nuclear weapons? Well, if, but, that's, the, if that's the yeah, task, please. then it seems to me that uh, we can't, uh, simply put the events of 1945 behind us and say, well, that was then, we're in a different time now. I mean, I believe I am correcting saying that U.S. military intelligence in the summer of 1945 knew that the Japanese government was looking for a way to end the war. Uh, I may be misremembering, but I believe it was a Japanese approach to the Soviet government. Uh, I can see the Archbishop uh, wagging his head, uh, but I think I'm correct. Uh, we can't know uh, where that would have led, uh, but it is not correct. It's not historically correct to say that 
uh, there, there was no alternative to dropping the bomb on Hiroshima at, on August 6th of 1945. Uh, Joseph, you, 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 a few minutes ago, said some, asked whether or not that the, whether or not the critical view of Hiroshima uh, in terms of American public opinion might be a, a, a minority view. Right. I haven't seen sort of, you know, polls, but I would, I would bet my paycheck that, of course, it's a minority view. Right, right. Uh, why is that? Well, that's because of the preference uh, that we have for taking a morally sanit sanitized view of this worst war in all of, of history. And I made the allusion to what I would have thought as a boy. When I was, thought, when I was a boy, I certainly uh, viewed World War II as unambiguously, unambiguously, a war of good against evil. Uh, and I have to say that at my now advanced uh, age, I think that that uh, is, an, is an oversimplification uh, that, that we should do well to challenge as long as World War II is held up as this unique moment in history that pitted good against evil, that it makes it that much more difficult for us as Americans to come to terms with our role in the world subsequent to World War II, because the, the moral overhang of World War II, which continues down to the present moment, I think obstructs uh, serious self-understanding. Again, not an understanding specifically related to Hiroshima, but a serious understanding of why we have done what we have done in the world and whether or not what we have done uh, contributes to peace, uh, you know, con contributes to a, a, a world in which war is banished. And I must say that my, and, and from my point of view, the answer to that question is we've done a heck of a lot uh, that since 1945 that has done anything but contribute to a world in, that, is, that is more peaceful. We've made lots of tragic mistakes. Uh, and I think the unwillingness to confront the moral complexity of World War II creates barriers to understanding the moral complexity of our history from 1945 down to the present moment. Thank you. Uh Anybody want to respond to that, Archbishop, maybe, um, or uh, Father Drew? Go ahead, Father. Well, I, I would, uh, I, I would, I, I, uh, I, I sympathize with Andrew's uh, point about about world too. It is morally complex in many ways, uh, uh, but I think we we are in an especially. Um, acute moment in the history of, of uh, geopolitics and military affairs in what, what the authors of the Daedalus issue in the spring called uh, the, the new nuclear era, the nuclear era of modernization, autonomous weapons and artificial intelligence. Um, uh, and the new world in which there are, there's not two nuclear powers, but nine nuclear powers and four of them outside the non-proliferation treaty. 
So uh, getting things under control uh, is far more difficult now, both for geopolitical reasons and for technological reasons than it was in, in, uh, in the 1960s or the 1980s. Uh, and so uh, this moment is peculiarly dangerous. The, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has, has uh, uh, illustrated that by moving the clock, uh, the doomsday clock, to 100 seconds before midnight to illustrate how dangerous it is. It's, it's as dangerous as it's been since 1953 when the Russians dropped their first hydrogen weapon. Um, uh, and at the same time, we have the US and the Russians doing away with the architecture of, of arms control and disarmament. So it seems to me this is a very, very parlous time and one in which we have to take very serious stock of ourselves and our leaders and our military policy for that reason. Archbishop, anything? The only thing I would add was I would certainly agree that uh, that uh, World War II is, is a morally complex uh, issue. And certainly, the uh, it was the ultimate solution of the uh, of the depression for uh, for uh, the United States at that time. Not that they entered the war because of that reason, but I mean that's certainly a contributing factor. Um, so I mean I I don't think anything is black and white here. And of course, war is is always an evil. It's always a failure. I spent 25 years of my life as a diplomat trying to uh, uh, avoid that failure by having uh, dialogue and encouraging uh, conversation. So um, I think uh, I think the the point there is is very well taken. Let me move um, on uh, in a manner suggested, perhaps um, by Archbishop, but also um, by Father Drew, to sort of where we are right now, you know, and and, and moving forward. Um, uh, an argument that we're all aware of for the status quo, a status quo of uh, nuclear deterrence, um, even with nine or more states possessing nuclear weapons, is, as you all know, that while we've, we've avoided some major conflicts, um, it seems like, as a consequence of um, some states' possession of nuclear weapons, right? So India and Pakistan, um, uh, uh, Israel and enemies. Um, obviously, you know, during the Cold War, um, is there is there something to tell you know our listeners about that? Is that argument simply bunk in your eyes, or is there something to that that makes perilous even you know a kind of moral requirement of drawing back from nuclear weapons? Um, maybe Drew, you can take the first swipe at that. If that question makes sense. Yes. Um, well, your colleague at, at uh... Catholic University of America, Marian Kusumana Love reminds us that that uh, trying to trying to police the world to keep it free from nuclear weapons has created as many problems as not. I mean, the, the, the yeah, efforts, yeah. you know, so the, the, the bombing in Syria, the bombings in, in, in Iraq, um, uh, uh, the the rewarding of malefactors. I mean, India was given uh, uh, civilian nuclear aid after it had developed its, its weapons outside the NPT. Um, uh, we, we, don't, we turn our eyes at Israel's development of the, of, the, of the bomb. We even go so far in 2015 as to prevent the conclusion of the, non the NPT review conference because Israel doesn't want there to be even the beginning of a nuclear free zone in the Middle East. And it was only three countries that stopped that consensus, the US, Canada, and Great Britain. Uh, I, I put it this way, I don't think 
the, nu the, the nuclear powers and the non-proliferation tre treaty have any moral right, certainly, and probably no legal right that's a legacy right to nuclear weapons. Uh, they, the, the NPT has been used again and again as a cudgel to work against non-nuclear states and not, not to hold the nuclear states uh, uh, responsible. And I think if, if the NPT review conference delayed now until January, which is a terrible time for, for the US to have it delayed, with the shift of governments, but perhaps, but but uh, uh, I I I think that that uh, uh, there, there needs to be real attention to the disarmament by the, all the nuclear powers at this particular junction, uh, and uh, but beginning with the with the two old superpowers, Russia and the U.S. and China will may may come in once they demonstrate that they're really sincere about resuming uh, those, those discussions. Um, so I think, I think that, um, uh, that the si Article 6 of the NPT really needs to be um, held up as a principle that has, that is requirement to disarm uh, effectively and, 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 and uh, with, with ex expeditiously uh, of nuclear weapons. Uh, is 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 essential to the to the preservation of the MPT. If the nuclear states don't show their the good faith in that, uh, the MPT will fall apart. The ban treaty itself, um, the treaty on prohibition of nuclear weapons, exemplifies that. 122 states voted for it. Now, some some um, 30 or 40 now have have uh, uh, have, have signed it. Um, I'm sorry, 30 or 40 have, have ratified it more. I think about 80 something have signed it. Uh, but it represented a consensus of the, the non-nuclear states that something had to be done besides the NPT to stop nuclear, the, the expansion of nuclear weapons. Don't, but Andy, shouldn't we worry that that will lead to conflicts where there have not been conflicts? Like like between, you know, major blown out conflicts between Pakistan and India or other states that are, that the argument goes seem to be uh, prevented by one or both parties' possession of nuclear weapons. But differently, doesn't, isn't this conducing to a kind of peace, um, a, a kind of warlessness um, where there might otherwise be war? I don't think I'd sign up to the term warlessness. Yes, sorry, maybe a little strong. I, I, I think it's more uh, war, but not nuclear war, conflict, but not nuclear conflict. And, and yeah, we could, uh, you know, uh, get, given that nuclear conflict between opposing sides with nuclear weapons really would seem to be the ultimate uh, catastrophe in putting humankind as a whole in jeopardy. We want to, we want to, we want to prevent that. But, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not one of these uh, theologians of, of nuclear strategy. Uh, and I don't, but it does seem to me that the, the logic of deterrence and assumptions about the prerequisites uh, of the term deterrence should be subject to re-examination. 
I mean, to my, from my point of view, an example of this is the, is the question of, of, of no first use. Uh, yeah, I think I'm correct in saying that uh, successive American administrations, the, the, the issue of no first use comes up from time to time uh, and has been soundly rejected by American policymakers who insist that for the United States to embrace no first use would then, you know, put us on a slippery slope to where deterrence would no longer be effective. I think that should be questioned. I think it is a counter argument and the counter argument is if we can move to a regime in which all, uh, all nuclear powers commit to a posture of no first use that arguably that would be a significant step toward creating conditions where real disarmament could in fact be pursued. Uh, and there I think the United States, if, if the United States doesn't take a, a leadership position on that issue, uh, then nothing happens. Uh, and we end up where we are right now where we, our nation has embarked upon a massively expensive program of nuclear modernization, where over the next, I think 20 years or so, I think it's supposed to, this program is supposed to continue until something like 2035. Uh, we're building new missile launching submarines. We're building a new strategic bomber. Uh, we're building new land-based ICBMs and we're building new warheads, uh, which this is alluding to something somebody said a few minutes ago, are quote unquote smaller and therefore said to be uh, more, more usable. Uh, given, given our circumstances as a nation and the multiple crises that we're facing right now, uh, and given larger uh, security concerns, such as, the, such as climate change, such as the increasingly uh, difficult competition between ourselves and China. I, I am hard pressed to understand why spending a trillion or a trillion and a half dollars modernizing our nuclear uh, arsenal uh, is a good idea. Uh, I think it is a waste of money. And, 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 and also the, the fact that that modernization program has gotten virtually no serious public attention. It's not being dis discussed as part of our presidential election. I think that also signifies the extent to which uh, in the political arena, the nuclear question in our country has been simply shrugged off and that's bad. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that um, people in the generations below mine simply almost take it as a kind of fact of life um, and don't question it uh, at all. But maybe now we should turn um, to the questions from uh, our audience members. So if you do have questions, please don't hesitate to type it into the Q&A box. Um, there's a bunch there right away. And what I'll do is I'll just read them and I'll try to direct them um, to the panelists who it seems most um, appropriate to. But I also invite um, my other panelists uh, to weigh in. The first of these, um, Archbishop, seems pretty clearly directed uh, to you. Uh, why can't or why don't the U.S. bishops link halting the nuclear atomic bomb production and possession 
to a major preeminent pro-life issue such as abortion. Uh, Pope Francis is very clear on this. Um, so uh, why are bishops hesitant to do this, Archbishop? Why won't they link this issue of nuclear atomic uh, weapons and their production and so on to uh, the issue of uh, pro-life in general? Any insight into that? Well, I think the first thing I would say is, uh, well, I don't speak for the U.S. bishops. Uh, I, I, I know, I know. The Archbishop <laughs> of the military services. Um, but I think the first uh, issue there is, is that uh, when we talk about the uh, right to life and in the, in the abortion question, it is preeminent. Um, and I think you're talking about, about two different things here. Um, now, I would certainly favor, um, you know, using the money that, uh, that we might spend on uh, modernizing nuclear weapons uh, to, spend, uh, to spend them on, uh, you know, on social issues. I would certainly be in favor of that. But um, I, I don't think that, um, that we can put the two things on the same page. Okay, thank you. Um, and again, like I said, if anybody wants to weigh in, don't hesitate, Drew or um, uh, Andy. Okay, uh, here's a question um, similar to the one that we've, we've asked uh, before. Uh, we don't discuss alternatives. Japanese civilians were staring at an increasing number. I think Archbishop, actually, you were quite sensitive to this. Um, the deaths of Japanese, if we had invaded, would have greatly exceeded those lost to the bombs, um, et cetera. We, and and the, the questioner, it's not really a question, it's more of a comment notes that we've seem to have had an unprecedented 75 years without any large scale wars. Um, again, this is a kind of argument that however horrific um, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki might've been uh, that, you know, a, a kind of a, a fair calculus um, at the moment and a lot of other historical factors we're all aware of really seem to urge uh, that we, we use these weapons. Uh, and then in fact, they produced a kind of peace. Um, Could I handle I, that one? I think, yeah, please, Andy. I'll, I'll answer it in, in four words, if I could. Korea, Vietnam, and Persian Gulf. I mean, the notion that somehow since 1945, we have enjoyed this era of non-war is simply uh, doesn't stand up to even the slightest examination. Uh, the, the American strategic bombing campaign uh, in, in the Korean War uh, is like one of the great secrets of US military history hidden in plain sight. As soon as the North invaded the South, we embarked upon an effort to destroy uh, every major North Korean city. Uh, and indeed, we achieved great success in doing that. I don't think there are anything like uh, accurate figures about the number of North Koreans that were killed. And again, we're talking about North Korean civilians for the most part, but I believe a rough estimate is something in the order of a million or so. Similarly, the bombing of, the, of, of North Vietnam, of Laos, uh, of, of Cambodia uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, horrific, horrific casualties uh, pursuant to our effort to try to maintain the, maintain the existence of the Republic of, of Vietnam. So this notion that, uh, that Hiroshima has bought us peace, maybe it persuades others, but it doesn't persuade me. 
Yeah, I would I would add to that that, that the notion that we escaped nuclear health, um, I I think is 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 mis is mistaken. That we came very close any number of times. Um, uh, there are two celebrated instances of Russians. One is uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis when there was a there was a, a Russian sub that was being to uh, death charged by the U.S. Navy, and it, the launch of, of a, a nuclear torpedo or a nuclear yeah torpedo uh, what was something that the captain wanted to, to do to save the ship, but his flotilla commander, who was the third key, refused to do that. If he hadn't done that, there would have been a nuclear war between the U.S. and, and Russia, and East Coast of the U.S. would have been destroyed. Uh, uh, in another instance, uh, that well documented in a celebrated movie, The Man Who Saved the World, uh, uh, Colonel Petrov, who was a missile commander, six times refused launch orders from the computerized systems because he mistrusted them. And again, uh, saved us from nuclear war. Last night I heard uh, Bill Perry, the former defense secretary said, he knows of at least three times when uh, there was a close call on being uh, because of uh, uh, hair, hair trigger kinds of responses that we would have been launched into war, uh, nuclear war. And there, there's numerous, very detailed histories of various accidents that take place that could have been catastrophic. So uh, it seems to me that, that, uh, uh, that, that nuclear war has been getting, uh, 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 nuclear weapons have gotten a false reputation for, for saving peace when they've really endangered the peace and and much more than than we, we understand. I suspect some of this goes to um, your earlier point, Andy, about how we understand the Second World War, right? And um, the presence or absence of moral ambiguity with regard to it and how we understand subsequent conflicts um, and being having been saved from, uh, you know, uh, from war uh, and, and you know, some, some kind of peace existing. Uh, that strikes me as something worth a lot of reflection itself. But we do have a question that relates to this. And one of our uh, audience members wants maybe you, Andy, to fill out um, this just a little bit more if you can. What is, um, what, what, what is this like the specifics of the, the case for moral ambiguity in the Second World War? Because most of us, right, think of it as, that's a pretty black and white situation. Um, you know, uh, Germany, aggressive invading power, you know, uh, Japan, aggressive imperial power. Uh, and we, we, like other countries, were basically backed into uh, having to defend ourselves. Now, I mean, I'll, you don't have to fill this out fully, but just give the, the audience a, a couple of points maybe that uh, might so, help them. So let me try not to be misunderstood. Uh, no doubt in my mind uh, that uh, World War II was a just war. No doubt in my mind uh, that the Nazi regime was pure, unadulterated evil and needed to be destroyed. Frankly, I think that the issue of the Pacific War uh, is considerably more complicated. Uh, so let me focus on that just for a minute. Sure, sure. And I don't want to suggest uh, that Japan was not the aggressor 
uh, in in December of 1941. Not simply attacking the United States, but 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 launching an offensive throughout uh, Southeast Asia. Right, right. But there is a context uh, that needs to be understood, and and the context really goes back to 1898, uh, when the United States uh, created a maritime uh, empire. Uh, in the Western Pacific as a consequence of the Spanish-American War and, and put a, an imperial United States on a collision course with an imperial Japan that was intent on becoming a great power. Won't rehearse everything that happened uh, between 1898 and, and 1941, but I would say this, uh, tactically, the attack on Pearl Harbor came out of the blue but from a strategic point of view, it was a long time coming uh, and was a consequence of a competition between the United States and Japan for who was gonna be the dominant power in the Western Pacific. They attacked Pearl Harbor out of desperation uh, because of the pressure that we were exerting that, that faced them with the choice that, that they believed, either they were gonna forfeit their empire or they were gonna have to uh, embark upon this incredibly reckless uh, uh, war against the United States. They sure made the, the wrong choice, uh, but I think it is uh, necessary to acknowledge the, the context uh, in which uh, that came about. And it wasn't a context in which everything did, did was bad and everything that we did was good because we were in fact an imperial power with imperial ambitions in the Pacific. Thank you. Thank you. Um, here's a question that shifts gears a little bit back towards perhaps Archbishop and Father Drew um, from a friend of mine. Uh, what does the church say to members of the US military when they ask about the use of nuclear weapons? How can they fulfill their obligation to fo follow valid orders from their commanders? So for instance, uh, he continues, let's assume the US satisfied the ad bellum criteria of the just war theory and the Japanese population was not militarized, would the panelists have counseled a non-nuclear non option um, in which the foreseen collateral damage was proportionate, but nevertheless would have resulted in more Japanese civilian deaths than the two atomic bombs? It's a tough one. Uh, let's just start with the first part of that then, perhaps Archbishop and Father Drew. What do, what, what do you say to US military members about what, if anything, uh, about nuclear weapons? Generally, um, I mean, in, in my conversations, and I've, I've certainly visited uh, installations that have uh, nuclear weapons, but uh, uh, I, I, my understanding would be obviously to use, uh, to apply the just war theory if, uh, if that were, if, if they were, I mean, I think all of us live in the hopes that uh, that, that order never comes. Um, but, um, and I, I'm, at this point in time, I think it would be hard to justify that, that there, there would be a just use of, uh, of nuclear arms. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I suppose I'd have to look at the, I'd have to see the, the concrete situation that presents itself. I, I'd first suggest that the, uh, uh, the concerned uh, military personnel and officers go back and look at the recommendations for people holding Pacific positions 
uh, in the Bishop's Pastoral of, of 1983. It seems to me that that's a good place to begin to see what, what, where their responsibilities are. I think that the second is to understand that both um, church teaching, and um, this includes Vatican II, uh, maybe especially Vatican II, um, and uh, military law uh, requires that, that people not carry out illegal orders. And illegal, in this case, is immoral orders. I mean, um, I think both the present and the previous uh, SAC commanders have testified in hearings before Congress that was presented with an illegal order, they would go back and say, no, that, that's an illegal order. I can't perform it. Uh, here are the, the alternative suggestions for, for use of force. I think that's that's an important place to begin. Uh, oh, well, the second place to begin is that that they really need to know how to assess what a legal and illegal are uh, is. Uh, they should seek counsel from their from their JAG officers. Uh, we may have gone to excess bringing JAG officers into targeting decisions in the, the Obama administration, but nonetheless, I think they can offer advice here. Uh, and lastly, I think they they have to to look at the complexities of the present situation and say, given the, the Pope's uh, teaching, condemning the use of nuclear weapons and their possession, what, what does that say to me in conscience? Where is the spirit moving me to take action? Uh, and how might I with, with other people, uh, other Christians who are conscientious and other people of goodwill in the military, how, how should we take responsibility at this moment? That's, that's where it started. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, another question, um, a different one, but related to some of our prior conversation. Um, uh, one of uh, our audience members writes, in the last few days, um, he has come across reports by people familiar with the brutality of the Japanese military against people in, uh, and women in particular in China, Malaysia, and other Asian nations who are thankful uh, for the atomic weapons that ended the war and Japanese brutality in their countries. Does that affect our thinking about these weapons? Um, the, the audience member asks. And, and the argument's, I mean, quite straightforward, right? Does the fact that these may have accelerated the end of the war and ended um, Japanese brutal imperial brutality in uh, Asia uh, cause you guys to reconsider, um, you know, not, not at all, not at all. I deny the supposition that there were no alternatives. If, if Marshall and Eisenhower and Leahy all advised against it, and Eisenhower you know, told us after the war, uh, we need to be aware of the military industrial complex because of this issue. Um, and Vatican II has told us that uh, we need to, uh, that, that it's a crime against God and humanity uh, to, uh, uh, aim at the, the devastation of wide areas and their populations. Uh, it seems to me uh, we 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 need we need to say this is it was not a suitable means at that time. There are lots of people, not only in intelligence but historians now. Uh, I've I've seen several during the last couple of weeks several uh, symposia of of historians saying, look, we now know that that it was the Russian, possible Russian invasion of, of the islands uh, and the fear of losing the, North, the Northern Islands that 
turn the Japanese policy around, not not the bombings. So it seems it seems to me that we, we need to we need to take the air out of that supposition that there were no alternatives. People in authority knew there were alternatives at that that time, and they 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 didn't choose to act on them, and they choose to they choose chose to cover them up for a couple of years at least. Anybody else on that one? Okay, here's another one. Um, how do uh, or how does the fact that non-state organizations are seeking access to nuclear weapons affect states' thinking about nuclear disarmament? Uh, so the rise of non-state uh, entities that might be on the market for nuclear weapons, nuclear materials, um, does that actually affect the way states think about these issues? Maybe, Father Drew, maybe you know a little bit about this. Um, is it, is well, it, it, it does affect the way states think about it, uh, not for the better, because it's one of the places where uh, the U.S. at different points in the Nikola Post review is that, <clears throat> excuse me, has uh, said that the U.S. might use nuclear weapons if, if they felt that a terrorist was close to using one. Um, uh, uh, but I, I think the, the better lead is from uh, George Schultz, uh, former uh, um, Secretary of State, Bill Perry, this former Secretary of Defense, uh, former Senator Nunn, former Secretary of State Kissinger, said in light of, of 9-11, they changed their minds and for 15 years now have been advocating for abolition because they said, as Kissinger said, the U.S. can't go on saying we're the only ones or only ourselves and our, our trusted friends can have the weapons and no one else can. It can't go on in this the kind of world we have. And so what we have to do is to move on path towards abolition. And so Schultz and his colleagues have been working on that now for 15 years. Um, uh, I think that's the proper, proper conclusion to draw from the threat of uh, non-state actors getting a hold of the weapons. Let me ask you a question. Once the genie is out of the bag, um, is there some effective way to make sure that non-state actors do not obtain nuclear weapons or do not develop nuclear weapons? I, I, I don't think there's any um, foolproof way. I think, as Pope John said, uh, you know, at a certain point, you have to learn to to, to trust in a situation. But I, I think that. Uh, you can go far. I think the non-Luger non legislation did a lot to secure the material that that uh, uh, terrorists might have might have utilized. And I think, you know, the last few years that's that's gone by the wayside. But I think I think to renew and strengthen that kind of activity of the non-Luger uh, legislation would be very important. Where we we secure with the Russians and with the help of other people various various supplies of of uh, enriched uranium uh, that could be used in building a bomb. Uh, another question um, relates to perhaps the genie in the bottle and that says, can, can the use of nuclear weapons be unlinked from the use of nuclear power? Uh, do, are you aware of whether, you know, you, in, in other words, it, it seems to be sort of suggesting, do we have to just sort of put, try to stuff that genie back in the bottle um, across the board? Um, or because these things are just too linked. Uh, any thoughts on that, anybody? Well, I'm not a nuclear engineer, 
but uh, I believe that uh, nuclear power plants, that is to say power plants that uh, exist to produce electrical energy uh, can be designed so that the nuclear materials that they use and I think reproduce uh, can be below the grade uh, that is useful for nuclear weapons. It's also true. You can design a nuclear power plant that will produce uh, materials that could be used for nuclear weapons. So it's an engineering issue. And then it's also an issue uh, of uh, international openness with regard to what kind of nuclear facilities exist uh, and whether or not those nuclear facilities are, are open for uh, in inspection. So it is possible, I think, as, as Father Christensen said, there's no guarantees, but I think right. it's, it's, it's possible to design a system in which nuclear power can be available as a source of energy with minimal expectations that there'll be a source of weaponry. Um, the late John Steinbrenner from the University of Maryland head of the committee for the National Academy of Sciences, science that in terms of looking at, at uh, um, a kind of uh, carbon-free future argued that you could have a series of small contained reactors that, that wouldn't, and produce your energy, not in large plants, but in these smaller units in such a way that they, they couldn't be tampered with and they couldn't, uh, um, uh, they could. They wouldn't have the the, uh, the residues that would permit the, the use of, of the material for for bomb making. Uh, but uh, I've I've asked engineers and physicists about that, and I said, well, if if, if that could happen, it's we're still a while from that happening. It's not not a present engineering reality. Great. Okay. Fi final question. Um, we've, we've been talking a long time, and I think it's been really informative. Um, one of our uh, audience members asks whether there's a racial component um, to uh, the use of nuclear weapons against Japan. In other words, is, is, it, is it not merely coincidental or co a consequence of timing that we were prepared to use the weapons in Japan? Is there any evidence um, um, with regard to this as opposed to in Europe? Do you know, anybody aware? Well, the, the war ended before the, in Europe. The war ended in Europe right. before the bomb was available. I think it is a historical fact that the initial motivation for the Manhattan Project uh, was stemmed from the conviction uh, that Nazi Germany had a nuclear weapons program right. and the fear that uh, it was going to be successful. I think we know in retrospect uh, that te technologically they were lagging behind uh, the United States, but uh, the initial impetus of the Manhattan Project was to develop a weapon that would be directed against Germany. Great, thank you. Okay, um, unless you guys, gentlemen have any fine final thoughts um, uh, and, and I welcome you if you do, uh, I think we'll, we'll call this uh, to conclusion. I, like I said, I think we've uh, covered a lot of ground and I, you know, I'm deeply grateful to all of our panelists um, for being a part of this and, of course, 
to the audience members for listening. I think it's, it's been, uh, again, informative um, and a difficult conversation at times to have. So on behalf of um, the Berkeley Center for Religion and Peace and World Affairs, on behalf of Lumen Christi, the Institute for Human Ecology, of which I am a part, and America Media, I just want to thank everybody for taking the time this afternoon for joining us uh, and, and wish you well for the rest of the week. Thanks Thank you very, very much. much. Bye bye. Bye bye, guys. Thank you. Bye bye, everybody. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>